October greetings and happy Filipino American History Month. Uh, welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, uh, program coordinator of the Institute. I want to thank everybody for joining us for tonight's talk on Homeless NYC, Art, Activism, and Political Spatiality in Post-Pandemic World with Professor Midori Yamamura and artists Nancy Huang and Betty Yu. Uh, on Homeless NYC is a group exhibition co-curated by Professor Yamamura of artists utilizing uh, participation, activism, and pedagogy as their media to consider and better understand New York City's housing crisis and to think about our future as the city emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the exhibition is being hosted by the Kingsborough Art Museum online and off-site from October 10th, uh, 2021 to October 14th, 2022. Uh, the in-person portion of the exhibit is going to be from March 3rd, 2022 to March 14, 2022. So please mark that on your calendar. Uh, Midori Yamamura is an assistant professor of art history at Kingsborough Community College, CUNY, and author of Yayoi Kasuma, Inventing the Singular. Uh, professor Yamamura is a specialist in post-World War II Asian and Asian diaspora art. Uh, she's currently working on her second book, uh, Japanese Contemporary Art Since 1989, Emergence of the Local in the Age of Globalization. And she has co-edited uh, visual representations of the Cold War and post-colonial struggles, art in East and Southeast Asia, which uh, she and her co-editor uh, presented on earlier uh, this summer in July uh, at the Research Institute. And that video is actually available online uh, and also on our YouTube channel to view. Uh, Nancy Huang is, was born in Seoul and based in New York. She has been producing audience participatory projects spanning two decades in North America, Europe, and Asia. Uh, always possessing a sense of open-endedness, chance, and spontaneity, uh, her practice involves making connections and building relationships. Among various venues, uh, she has exhibited at uh, Apex Art, Artist Space, El Museo del Barrio, Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, MoMA PS1 Contemporary Art Center, Sculpture Center, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, The Kitchen, and White Columns. Uh, her Blue Bottom Project, uh, back in 2003, promoted dialogue about the war in Iraq. S, another project of hers, is a public intervention to wash, uh, was a public intervention to wash the hair of people uh, from all walks of life at a shampoo station installed at uh, Lieutenant Petrosino Park in New York. Her ongoing project currently is Somewhere in America, which invites proposals for, for, travel, for traveling with her within the U.S. Uh, Betty Yu, our uh, second artist, is a multimedia artist, photographer, filmmaker, and uh, art activist, born and raised in New York City to Chinese immigrant parents. Uh, Betty has uh, integrates documentary film, new media platforms, and community-infused approaches in her practice, and she is a co-founder of the Chinatown Art Brigade, a cultural collective using art to advance anti-gentrification organizing. Uh, she holds a BFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, an MFA in Media Arts from Hunter College, and New Media Narratives Program Certificate from the International Center of Photography. Uh, also just mentioned that she also was a past participant in our uh, CUNY Asian American Film Festival, which uh, her short film was screened at. Uh, and with that, I would like to welcome Professor Yamamura, Nancy, and Betty for tonight's talk. So I'm going first. Thank you. And would like to uh, thank Asian American uh, Asian Research Institute for hosting our event today. 
Tonight, uh, we are going to introduce Unhomeless New York City exhibition, which my colleagues and I are organizing for Kingsborough Art Museum. It's an exhibition about housing crisis. And uh, tonight, we have a great artist, Betty Yu, who has been dedicated in this issue for uh, over 20 years of her career. And I really uh, respect her work. Uh, so, we are living in a very strange time that uh, the exhibition was originally scheduled for October 13th, uh, but because of the COVID restrictions, uh, we had to move it until March uh, of 2022. But at the same time, because the virtual space had been developing so much that prior to the physical exhibition, we feel like the show is already open and because all the works are socially engaging art. So we feel like we were like walking around the clock um, to deal with the issues of housing crisis. And it is a strange time that uh, if I were a young curator, I feel like I can start creating a show like right at any moment, which was impossible while uh, we were, um, I mean, I was practicing curatorial uh, exercise earlier because you need money, you need space. It's really a different world. And this type of um, alternative space may be um, Asian American space because I write about Yayoi Kusama and among the works she had created one of the most um, the strongest work is really the ones which didn't happen in the museum space such as Narcissus Garden which she had a guerrilla um, introduction at the Venice Biennial in 1966 or uh, MoMA Grand Orgy where she created a naked happening in the museum's garden. So um, later on, we would like to discuss about this kind of like alternative space as a pol political possibility. But before going too long, um, because of the COVID yet, we uh, had created an uh, the videotape of our uh, exhibition. So I would like to introduce this for seven minutes and then would like to uh, go to Nancy's presentation. She is uh, one of the uh, participating artists in the exhibition and uh, uh, she's creating a, an artwork as an extension of every day. And uh, I would call this is also an Asian American uh, space. Uh, and uh, and then would like to go to Betty's presentation. So now I'm going to uh, share the screen. Look, there's a bandit house. Go inside. No. 
can't do it. I can't do it. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I quote the Lord's Prayer. As I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I should fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. So I creep to the house. I turn the knob. Oh, this house was open. It was open. I didn't go all the way in. Dogs, death. I stayed in the front. And I set my watch to five o'clock. And I leave this place. But right now, I just need a little sleep. I just need a little sleep. I came back the next night, faced with the same situation. I came back again and again and again. After the 10th time, I put a lock on the door. I'm making clothing with used clothing based on his idea. One of the ideas is hidden pocket in jacket. With this hidden pocket, I'm able to have my most important items on the street that I will need to use to handle my business on me. Upcycle uplift. This is a participatory project and an interdisciplinary project. It's a broader line between art and life. Intervene into the real world by collaborating with homeless people and creating clothing from recycled clothing. Homeless people are more likely to be belonging stolen even in the soup kitchen. And he always carry his backpack because he wants to move freely without holding anything both hand. With the external pockets now, this is even better because it gives me a chance to put things like my cell phones, a hook right here for my pen. In the back of the, the pouch here, I have keys. It gives me a chance to have my stuff secure and I don't have to worry about getting stolen. Oops, who have lived experience of something are the real experts on the issue. We're talking like two human beings. It's just like jumping in, taking a risk. That was the type of conversation I would want to have with anyone who has been through it or anyone who is in that situation right now. We have a constitution that is 400 years old, written in good old boy language, and that's where the problem starts. We really need a new constitution, folks, believe it or not. So I spent two and a half years homeless on the streets of Miami. They oversaturated the Miami market with housing, with luxury housing that they couldn't sell. And people were still living under the bridges and in shanty towns and being released from prison and taken right underneath the bridge. Come back to New York, rather than spend my time in the shelter over those 10 months staring at the green walls, I would go to the library every day and try to understand how planning happened in New York City. Gentrification leads to displacement, which leads to criminalization, which leads to homelessness. There seemed to be a predetermined path for some people in this world. And most of those people look like me, either their skin was brown, they had immigrated here to the U.S. Three times more vacant spaces in New York City than there are homeless people. Real estate people in the city will tell you there's not enough supply for the demand and they're lying. Sometimes uh, uh, speculators can buy land uh, and they can sit on it for one, five, ten years, 20, 30 years or even longer. And that land could be used for a public purpose, but it's sitting uh, as if it were in somebody's uh, bank account. It's, it's a way that the community controls what goes on top of the land.
and no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. I'm kind of like continuing on into this journey of this fun homeless project. Having experienced parts of being homeless in the past five years, um, which really drew me into all of this. I think this kind of opened my eyes to the art world that is connected to social issues. A lot of the artists want public to be involved. And the more accessible you make it to people, the more you can reach them, obviously, and the more you can make art accessible to everyone. So the social justice platform doesn't only have to be like rallies and stuff like that. It can be quiet. It can just be there and it can still have an impact on you. My name is Tommy True. For the past couple of weeks, I've been taking the current unhomeless website and transforming it more user-friendly. Activism and social engagement to the fore of art practice. Level of ability to communicate is something that all artists develop. That's what we're bringing. There's a layer of evictions. Those are the red dots on the map. Every blue dot is a long-form interview that we recorded with tenants, not just about their evictions, but also about their resistance so that we could share that knowledge and that wisdom more broadly. for uh, listening. Uh, this is a video which we created for the UC Davis program where they want to introduce activists to um, scholarship or uh, activist project which doesn't come into the textbooks and they want to teach something alternative and uh, we created this video. It's not all the artists who are um, featured, but these are some of the artists and uh, it's really an activist art exhibition. So if anyone would like to uh, get involved, you are very welcome. And uh, um, so uh, please get in touch. And now I would like to transfer my microphone to uh, Nancy. Hi. Um I think since we just looked at that video, um, maybe I'll hold off on um, sharing uh, my video. It's just a documentation of an old piece that I did uh, that took place in the public realm where I washed hair for about a month. Um, I'm thinking about it now. I had interactions with um, several homeless people then. Um, I remember um, one person coming. He he. He was not really mentally all there um, and he didn't have any hair, but I washed his scalp. And um, as soon as it happened, the guy across the street that was hanging out who had really, really long hair, he came running over and he used to walk around in crutches. So the, he didn't really need the crutches, 
but um, regardless, um, he had been there for almost the whole month and it was a project in the public, but he knew he wasn't part of the public. It wasn't for him, Was that was his understanding. And when he saw that I did interact with a homeless person, um, it changed. Um, and that's something that um, uh, really resonated with me. And he had his hair in a ponytail. I washed it out and conditioned it and combed it. And he was walking uptown, just shaking his hair like a, like a shampoo commercial. And he was so happy. And it seems like such a small thing. But um, the thing that I think about is actually humanity. Um, I've actually been displaced from my home. I'm not homeless, but I've been displaced from my home for, um, it was for five months and I'm now back in my home. It's under construction, but um, just being displaced um, and not having access to your things, um, you can't focus, you can't. You can't be creative. You can't um, do a lot of things. Um, so I think about how difficult it is um, with all the tools that um, and programs there are to try to help homeless people get back on their feet, uh, whether it's um, giving them clothing and interview skills, things like that. I don't understand how any of that can help um, when you don't have a home. Um, so that's my um, way of sort of just empathizing on, on my own level. Um, it's, it's far from being homeless, but, um, like many people, um, during the pandemic, um, a lot of the hotels in the cities have been, uh, converted into shelters and there's a hotel across the street from me. It is, um, it's a Hilton Doubletree. It's one of these tall skinny things. And it's been a women's shelter. And the women have been there for the whole time. And I don't know what the city's going to do. I don't know what the long-term solution is. But um, they've become, I mean, my neighbors. Um, they hang out on the street because they don't always want to be hanging out at, at the hotel. So they're hanging out in front of my building a lot. And, you know, they're, we're respectful of one another. But I don't really interact with them too much Um but I did approach um, one of them because the simple idea that I had at the invitation of Midori um, was what can I do? What can I do to make a difference? I, I can't make a difference um, for 10 people, let's say, but I can maybe impact one person. Um, I'm not sure. I really don't know. Um, but um, Midori... Um, got a grant so I could do a little project where I've invited um, 10 women from the shelter to come to Madison Square Park, which um, is walking distance from us. And it's a park that's provided a lot of respite um, for people during the pandemic. Um, it's um, You can go there to relax. There's a lot of people picnicking there. There's music. Um, so anyways, it's, it's, again, it's like, it's a public park, but who is actually comprising the public that the public parks are supposed to benefit? Um, um, so I was thinking of um, the, 
the thing that I can do um, is just just to make a nice meal. Um, I have I have friends who are chefs, so I'm collaborating with them, and we're going to just make a nice meal um, and have tables and chairs, and that's it. That's, it's it's a really simple gesture. Um, but when I'm speaking with these women, I can, I can tell some of them are not well, like physically, mentally, one day they might be okay and another day they're not. So I don't really know what to expect when we actually do this lunch next Sunday, um, October 10th, um, at two o'clock. I'm not sure that the weather's going to be nice for us. I don't really know, but, you know, I'm thinking about, is the weather going to be nice for an event? But, you know, if you don't have shelter, you have to think about, is the weather going to be nice to me today so I can be comfortable and I can sleep? Um, so there's a lot of things that's been going on in my head. Thank you. So next is Betty. Betty, you. Hello. Um, so I will be sharing my screen. Um, it helps me keep organized and I, I always just want to begin with uh, a land acknowledgement um, because a lot of my work is around displacement and gentrification and other injustices and feel like we really can't have a conversation about those injustices, specifically land displacement and um, gentrification without acknowledging the, the stolen land that we all are sitting or standing on. Um, so Lenape land in New York City. Um, so New York City was the home to the first people's nation of Lenape, Agonikian people and Kanarsi were ethnic neighborhood uh, within, um, within Lenape. And that's where I am in Brooklyn, where I was born and raised. Um, and so we must pay respects uh, to Lenape people past and present and their future as they have a continuing presence and struggle on their homeland. Um, so I just wanted to open with that. Um, I like to start with a sort of more uh, a personal, uh, 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 providing a personal story and lens into my work and the different identities, um, the multiple hats I wear. So I am also an educator. I teach in CUNY system part-time as well as other places. Um, I'm a socially engaged artist, a cultural worker, activist, and filmmaker. Uh, I like to ground myself in um, honoring the ancestors who are related to me and those that are, who are not. But this here in this photo is my grandmother who helped raise me. My parents were uh, are still around, but they're retired garment workers now. But they worked for about 35 years, 40 years in the garment industry, working really long hours to put food on the table. And so my grandmother was really uh, the person along with my, you know, mom and dad, of course, but really who took care of me and my sisters. And you can just read here, you know, she was like our, our warrior. I remember me being the little, little one where in front of our house in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Um, and these kids would throw candy at me sometimes because I was little and small. And my grandma, you know, in her eighties was like very agile and had no qualms, just like, yelling at the kids saying, back off while I'll twist your neck in half. And in Toy Chinese, which is a dialect within the Ch in Chinese, it's hysterical. Um, you know, it's, it might not translate well. If I say it now, you probably won't understand what I'm saying. But uh, she was just a protector. and She was just um, amazing. She actually passed away about five years ago at 103 years old. So she's uh, a warrior in many, many ways. Um, and so I just always want to open with that photo. It's one of my favorite photos. Um, I'll just pass by this slide real quick. Um, I think um, the, my bio was read. So I've been, I guess, doing socially engaged art for many years and part of different residency programs and 
um, what you see here on the second paragraph is probably is is um, more the places that I've shown my films and my work, um, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll look I'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, more recently, what I'm most proud of is my work that I've been doing with um, with our my collective, the collective that I helped co-found, which is Chinatown Art Brigade. Um, and a lot of this work kind of uh, really kind of um, overlaps. But a lot of the work I'm involved in is, is in the public sphere, um, actually working with uh, community-based organizations and folks, members of the public and the, in the community who are most uh, vulnerable and impacted by issues of homelessness and gentrification and displacement. Um, and just, just to, I wanna go, slide, go through these slides really quickly. Um, just to say a lot of my work is grounded in who I am as a Chinese American with multiple generations of my family in the US, but because of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, multiple generations of my family actually couldn't stay here and build roots here. So like I had a great grandfather who I only found out a couple of years ago that worked on the West Coast in Utah, but left because of white supremacists, you know, would literally, you know, burn down Chinatowns and chase people away. And so a lot of my work is about honoring those personal stories. And then my grandfather was a hand laundry worker. And this is uh, kind of a co coalescing um, documents and pictures I found of an organization he helped co-found, which was later targeted by the FBI. So a lot of my stuff is grounded in that experience. My, my mother, like I said, is a garment worker. She was a garment worker organizer fighting for better conditions. Um, so this is an installation I did um, for a show as part of a larger installation, some of the her garments and a photography series. And depending on how you operated the sewing machine, different videos of different uh, workers would come up, not just about their stories, about, but also about how they're organizing and fighting back for better conditions and more humane um, treatment. Um, uh, I wanted to kind of now talk a, a more about my um, anti-gentrification work um, that collaborative work that is. Um, so this is a picture from a protest um, against the Brooklyn Museum in 2015. And the Brooklyn Museum, for those of you who might know about this institution, they've been around for a while and they used to be much more grassroots uh, oriented, but about 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, they revamped their whole museum to be more like a world-class kind of elite, elite institution. And along with that, they're in Crown Heights and Prospect Heights, right? Um, predominantly African-American and Caribbean neighborhood. Um, but they have become a, a major, as a cultural institution, a major gentrifying force. And I'll talk a little bit about like art and gentrification and the role that art and real estate plays, right? But um, folks are really upset because, you know, Brooklyn Museum actually does receive a lot of public money. Um, and uh, folks were, were angry that they were shutting down the museum for a couple of days to have this real estate summit. Some of the most powerful real estate people in, in the country who were meeting here at a public institution and not paying attention to what was happening in our own backyard. Um, and along with that, to add insult to injury, there was actually a show about art. And it's called, it, was, it was an agiprop show, Art for Agitation. Um, and a lot of the artists were, most of them were white and not necessarily dealing with issues in the community or folks from the community. So a number of us artists work with people in the community, majority African-American homeowners and renters uh, to call attention to Leffer's Garden, which is uh, close to, to the Brooklyn Museum and um, how you know the Brooklyn Museum along with other forces have been pushing out people of color uh, poor working class people of color for many, many years now. And so we work with them. It's hard to, to, to um, 
to this, the scale of this is hard to imagine, but it was quite big. And we met with the president of the museum and we said, you know, we're, you know, we're, you know, a number of us met with, with them and we said, you know, you need to put something in this art and activism exhibit about what's happening in our own backyard. And also pointing out institutions like Brooklyn Museum. And so for a number of months, we met with folks in the community and in the middle is a video I edited uh, with a you know coalescing video from from different activists, media activists, and it shows how these two African American women, as you can see, are were just testifying at a hearing, talking about uh, the harm of rezoning of building up condos, and they were literally dragged on the ground, um, dragged out of the meeting, uh, pretty pretty brutally. Um, and then you can see here all the other pieces of it. So they wanted to we wanted to not just talk about individuals, but we want to talk about systems, right? The system of gentrification that is um, is about you know um, a system of replacing people for profit, and so as you can see, there was a take action part where people could sign a petition. Um, there was tips about what to do, and then we also wanted to. I know it's hard to see here. You can see my cursor, agents of gentrification. We wanted to call out the government, the real estate industry. Eric Adams, who uh, will most likely be the next mayor, has actually been. Um, the never mind some of his poor policy on racial justice and policing, but he, you know, is coined over and over as saying build baby build right like in Brooklyn he was he gets a lot of real estate money he's a huge backer of big condos um, throughout Brooklyn the Brooklyn borough president currently right um, and then you should you see and one other thing I wanted to point out is. Um, the organizers and the activists said we want to we want people to see how rent burden has really destroyed people's lives. Normally, you pay like thirty percent. You're supposed to pay thirty percent of your income for rent. People in New York are paying fifty to sixty percent of their income on rent. And then over ten years, Crown Heights has lost fifty percent of its Black and Caribbean uh, um, residents. So it, it, it's really these numbers that you see. It's really stark. And the security guard at the exhibit mentioned that that was the most visited exhibit because it really reflected what people were going through and not just talking about as individuals, but actually systems like state sanctioned policies along with developers. Um, and this is my own project, which uh, exploring, um, uh, you know, gentrification in my own neighborhood, um, specifically, specifically how Latinx and Chinese immigrants have been impacted, small businesses, immigrant residences, uh, residents, um, along with, um, you know, working class folks who live and work there. Um, and so uh, I created an augmented reality project. So I interviewed people and I created a walking tour and a map. So I wanted people, I led people as a part of the show at this gallery, open source gallery, and led some walks around the neighborhood where people could download the app and put their phone onto um, onto the, either onto the, this is at the, the at the gallery, they could put they could put their phone onto the picture or outside when we're walking around. They could put their phone up to the location and and bring stories to life. Um, and you can kind of see here kind of um, this idea of how how we could kind of animate these stories. And so this was actually a work in progress uh, construction site sign that you see everywhere. And then you see this person talking about what what this really means to the community. This you know, this development and a lot of development in Sunset Park where I grew up is actually um, a real estate, I'm sorry, a finance capital from China and also domestic capital that has really uh, uh, literally in some, in some places is, uh, the real estate market has increased like tenfold, um, even with COVID. Um, so uh, whoops, let me just go to the next one. So this was um, 
the opening of the exhibit um, and just different stories that you can kind of bring to life. I brought in my own personal story because because my I grew up in Sunset Park. My family is still there and I worry about whether or not they can afford to, to stay in the neighborhood because real estate has taxes and, and the cost of living has increased so much. And then a big part of it of my work is archive archival research. So I would collect photos from people and this kind of thing, maps, counter cartography. So this idea of like, how do we create our own maps with the points of resistance and resilience that are not in sort of uh, these sort of generic uh, tourist maps or maps by colonizers that they created to mark property, right? Ownership and all that. And so that is a big part of my work. Um, so I'm just gonna keep going really fast. So as a part of uh, the show, a lot of my um, exhibitions I've done uh, with community members, I often have activist talks and artists and activist talks. And that was a newspaper, as you can see, I'm holding here, whoops, sorry. Um, here um, is where people could take the map and kind of uh, walk around the neighborhood and bring these stories to life. And so this is a part of a walk I did Sunset Park, this is the actual park where you can see how Industry City, which is this art, artist maker space that has come in and really um, gentrified the neighborhood. Um, and then um, showing people how to use the phone and bring the stories to life. This is the newspaper. My own parents' story is also part of this narrative um, and part of the, the project. And if people can, actually can't go to the place because they don't, they don't live in New York, uh, it's also, uh, there's an interactive map uh, where people can bring those stories to life uh, through this um, simple Google My Map. Um, I'm not going to show an excerpt because I just want to keep going. This is another another iteration of the project um, at the Bricks Biannual in 2019. Um, and I created these maps. Um, so photos in the back that you see here are photos of, of me, my, my family in front of our house. Um, and I realized that my 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 mom and my uh, father and grandmother were sending pictures home every year back home to China and Hong Kong, almost like to show like, oh, wow, we have a piece of the quote unquote American pie, right? This this house that they purchased in the you know, late 70s um, and only realize it until recently, like, why do we have to stand in front of this house and take a picture? Um, so you see these organza banners that I made um, basically just show the redlining maps, um, the redlining maps, as you all probably know, government sanctioned maps, I mean, gov government sanctioned laws, um, basically um, defining neighborhoods as red and dangerous if there was even a single person of color versus green neighborhoods and Bay Ridge and Brooklyn remain the only non-red, meaning a, a good neighborhood because there was not a single person of color. And a lot of this research I did myself, but of Tennessee uh, Coates' uh, Case for Reparations, which is an article in the Atlantic uh, about six years ago, was really pivotal for me in, in learning about more about these redlining maps and how the government obviously played a huge role in um, creating a huge wealth gaps, right? These huge wealth gaps amongst African-Americans and whites and other folks of color largely has to do with housing. It's banks, it's all of that, but housing is a huge, is a huge uh, stepping stone, right? To, to wealth attainment. So um, that was a really important part of it. I wanna keep going. During COVID, I worked on a number of projects and some of it was part of uh, an exhibit with International Center of Photography at ICP. Um, and so I was looking at gentrification through the lens of my parents, and these are my parents. So I was photographing them and doing, and then and then COVID happened. So a lot of stuff had to happen online. I didn't see my parents for about six months. And so a lot of my research of my grandfather as an organizer and like multiple generations of my family and land displacement, all these issues that I was exploring was now online through archival photos that I already just had with me 
thank God, uh, during COVID and then just talking to my mom on FaceTime and figuring that out. And then I was able to continue to photograph them a little bit later um, and just showing them in, in sort of uh, their, their uh, sort of daily environment, but also compound it with COVID and compound it with, you know, how to pay the bills. And if they can pay the bills, um, I just wanted to kind of capture that. They've been together for about, uh, you know, 55 years, but their marriage is uh, a, a very uh, <laughs> complicated one. So I just wanted to capture the, the realness of that too, the genuine um, complications of economics and all of that when it comes to a marriage. Um, and you can see these condos on my block that I grew up on. These are all condos that are going up on my block. Even during COVID, um, this is occurring. Um, and so I wanted to kind of capture and photograph that, well, the, the, you know, the scale of, of these condos. This is my parents from 1965 to 2020. Um, I love this photo just to kind of show the uh, all that they've been through. And um, yeah, they, they're still kicking it. <laughs> I'm going to just keep going really fast. Um, these are this over co you know, COVID. I just kind of went inward and, and really try to explore a lot of the anti-Asian hate and white supremacy and the roots of it um, that go way back. Right. Um, and how they're kind of really connected to to issues around housing and place and a sense of home. Um, and then this is something um, that was at the Brooklyn Museum um, last year, um, and it was called, oh, sorry, I don't know what happened to the, to the title, but it's called Resistance in Progress, and it was about folks, um, this is a J Jamaican-American man, Bobby Nathan, and now the right, uh, Sine, um, who, um, who is an organizer with Ming Kwan, which is a Korean immigrant organization, and they've been fighting gentrification and flushing Queens for many, many years, um, and it's come to a head um, even during COVID, um, and an average apartment is about like a, a million dollars um, by the waterfront in flushing, and um, this is a collage I made of, of, of literally of, of um, signs that I saw and of magazines, and so kind of coming up with that number was not just out of my own head, but really looking at um, the median um, prices and the average income of people in Flushing is like 40, not even 40,000 a year. So, um, so these are just more install images. This is like a guide that we put together, an online resource for people. Um, this is a show that I um, curated called Imagining Degentrified Features, which was at Apex Art uh, last year. Um, looking at um, not just what we're fighting against, but what are we fighting for? What kind of humanity and world are we fighting for? And so there were a number of artists that were part of that. And I'll share links because I, I, I know I'm probably running low in time. So, um, and this was a piece that I had in the show and it just showed, this is a large scale photography series uh, showing the evolution of how we could possibly de-gentrify de by starting with my own block. So how can we turn these condos into something that's greener and that's communal? So in Chinese, it says housing is a human right on the right side, the last photo. And you could see a sense of communal housing. Uh, I'm just gonna keep, sorry, I'm gonna keep passing, but this is a new a project that I worked, I'm working on more recently, collecting stories of people who have uh, faced um, COVID related um, anti-Asian hate, but um, also with the twist of not necessarily calling for increased policing because that we know that the police are not there to really protect us, but that we keep each other safe. And what are the alternative ways aside from policing that we can um, count on? And so this was a whole project where I interviewed people about solutions. Um, and as a part of that, um, this the series that I did this in Flushing Queens, the storytelling project, I recorded people's stories and they were part of a projection that happened in Flushing at night across from Flushing Commons, 
on a big condo wall actually, um, and people's stories were projected. Um, and then this is an article about Chinatown Art Brigade, like in April, uh, about some folks who've been, um, different ways that we've been actually using art as a way to elevate our stories. Um, and um, I'll just keep going here. So Chinatown Art Brigade is, you can see, I hopefully have like maybe five or minutes. I want to speak through this. Um, Chinatown Art Brigade is a woman-led collective of artists and media makers. And we've been focusing on degentrification issues, but also other issues um, that are important to the Chinatown community. Um, and we believe that central to our process is actually working with communities who are directly impacted. So a lot of our work revolves around working with a group called um, a Chinatown Tenants Union, which is a part of CAB. It's a group in Chinatown that has been fighting displacement um, after 9-11 gentrification you know, increased like tenfold in Lower East Side and Chinatown. And tenants have been facing massive harassment and, and landlord eviction and all of this. So this is on the rooftop of one of the tenant buildings. And so a lot of the, the uh, people who are part of the group are um, are also members of the tenants tenant group as well. And so as a part of uh, our, our workshops that we've done is we, we do story circles um, with the tenants and residents and other activists. We do walks so people make maps and they talk about the, the places of resistance and resilience. So this is a hotel on the left that used to be a place where Tamiya Arai, who is a co-founder of Chinatown Art Brigade, had a really famous, I think it's one of the top, whatever name, one of the best murals of all time or something, uh, mural she did back in the 70s with young people, and now it's a hotel. Um, and I remember, that, everyone remembers the iconic uh, mural. Um, people were able to do chalking, photography, lead, lead like, uh, lead talks about what was there before. So this, uh, this, this fitness gym on the right used to be a garment factory. So like over 500 garment factories were displaced after um, after 9-11, um, this is a group of us over dinner um, at the at office of, of CAV. Um, and then as a, a, a bit, we, these stories coalesce into, into projections. So this is where I just think this photo is kind of iconic, but folks were able to write uh, a message onto what is called a people's pad, and it was projected huge as you were writing it. But also there were there were messages um, and karaoke songs that tenants rewrote that also were projected. And there was this moment where there was tons of people just crowded around and sang together. Oh, uh, it was it was new lyrics, anti gentrification lyrics to a song, a famous Chinese song. And random people were just kind of singing along, and it gave a moment to talk to them about their conditions, living conditions, and um, that we had organizers there that talked to them. So it was a moment to actually have that interaction um, that was more meaningful than just art on the wall, right? It like spoke to them. And then this was um, a, a projection we did actually across the street from a place where tenants were being um, harassed, and there was like lead poisoning in the building, and they wanted to use this as a way to speak to people who were directly across the street. And as a result, some of the tenants from that building actually came out um, and, and came out and supported. So we've done a lot of anti-gentrification work. And I wanted to just point out the art, the cultural art washing piece because it's systems, not just, um, uh, you know, not just individuals. So I'll just point out really quickly here. I know these are a lot of words, but you know, this is um, pulling from some organizations out in uh, L.A. who do a lot of anti-gentrification work calling out um, specifically museums and galleries and artists. Uh, but it says that it says developers and real estate speculators have their eyes trained on the arrival of artists as a moment to start accumulating property. In an article from 2007, 
uh, want to know, there was advice, want to know where a great place to invest in real estate will be five or 10 years from now, look at where artists are living now. And so art is an industry and the way that it interacts with other industries, global finance and land use among them materially impact our lives. So again, looking at the mechanism, the, the larger system, and again, art washing to us specifically is these institutions that are used to gentrify and displace people in the guise of like beautification and revitalization. Um, I'll just I'll just go past this. Creative placemaking is a is a is is a often a initiative to, uh, between government, local government, and real estate agencies where they come into a community and hand cherry pick and hand pick a nonprofit and like a art local artist to change a physical makeup of our community. And uh, one thinks it's like beneficial, but after five, 10 years, this becomes um, the real estate value gets increased. And then people who made it what it is um, are displaced, right? The longtime community members. And then for many of us, um, we have coined a new phrase, creative placekeeping, which is described as maintaining um, active care and maintenance of a place but centering people and their lives and making sure that people are able to stay in their homes. That culture and mem cultural memories and culture is not just buildings. It's actually the people who make the community. Um, I'm gonna go past this really fast. This is a protest we did in 2017 against a European artist who basically offended everyone in Chinatown and may, wanted to pay homage to a pre-gentrified Chinatown, but it was all broken. Everything in the in the place was broken and janky and plastic bags were wrapped around stuff. And we, uh, you know, you can probably read about it because it was all over the news. And we protested it and we protested it when we, um, when we, um, when it closed, it, we, we called it racism disguised as art. Um, and of course, all of this received so much press and more than this, because one artist was offended, yet displacement and violence in the community doesn't, uh, you know, economic violence doesn't get covered. So um, I'm just going to go past here. We have mapped out over now it's 130 galleries that have replaced mom and pop places in the community. Um, rent is as much as 25000 a month now in Chinatown. We created these pledges about not just as an individual, but how you can support or, or an ongoing organizing that's happening in the community and policies that will keep people in their homes, asking people not to call the cops on local residents, because we know increased policing in these communities is not for the longtime residents, but it's for the newcomers, it's the Karens, it's the you know gentrifiers who move into neighborhoods. And then I'll end on this point, which is um, calling out institutions. So Museum of Chinese in America, we've been protesting and calling them out since 2018, 2019. Um, they have uh, received about $35 million from the city for building a new jail in Chinatown. Um, the, the mayor about five years ago announced the closing of Rikers, which we all know it's been in the news. Rikers is, treats their image horribly. Um, and as a result, they're gonna build five, four new jails in the four boroughs aside from Staten Island. And we say, there's no such thing as human cages. They say, oh yeah, there's gonna be light therapy and all kinds of ways to like, you know, um, um, you know uh, restore, uh, you know, these, uh, these folks, uh, inmates, uh, incarcerated folks, but there's no such thing as a human um, cage to us. And this is a jail that they wanna build right in the middle of Chinatown. And um, this is a letter that we wrote and it kind of exposed their role in art washing. Their board chair is also one of the biggest landlords in Chinatown, gentrifying Chinatown, union busting and this kind of thing. Um, 
uh, his name is Jonathan Chu, and he's the third generation of the Chu family. Anyway, um, a lot of artists like Godzilla, the uh, network of, of Asian American artists, iconic group, pulled out of doing a retrospective because of this. Other artists pulled out of their recent show about documenting the pandemic and anti-Asian hate. A number of them pulled out as a result of this. They didn't want to be complicit in, in, in this. Um, you know, uh, uh, Mocha basically uh, being complicit in incarceration and, and part of the prison industrial complex. Um, and then just these last images uh, basically of people who've been protest. So last week uh, there was a huge march um, and there was about 300 people on the left and on the right, this is another image. So this is the group to follow. I'll put it in the chat. Um, they've been doing a lot of organizing actually around um, this issue with MOCA. Um, and then lastly, I'm a part of a, a project. Uh, it's at the New York Historical Society and I'll be working with young people from the door, uh, which is a group that works with homeless youth on a poster project. And as a part of this show, um, a part of the show, we're uh, looking at artists uh, from the 80s and 90s, who basically uh, artists who work with shelters and, and people um, who are homeless and creating art um, and resilience. Um, and then this is a show, if you all are interested. Um, it's up for three weeks. The opening is tomorrow, and it's the number of folks in Chinatown, uh, Asian American artists who are showing there. And um, it's, it's looking at hope and resilience in Chinatown. Chinatown has been hit hard on many levels, as you know, with the pandemic. Uh, around racial injustice and, you know, just a lot of stuff um, and businesses and everything. So evictions. So um, that's opening up tomorrow night and I will stop sharing. Thank you so much, Betsy. It was an, and Nancy, excellent presentation. I hope we could see Nancy's piece because now you sort of like omitted the whole video. Yeah, I, Betty, I love the work you're doing. Um, it's interesting. Um, the, the thing on, I'm on 29th street between sixth and seventh, and it used to be a lot of manufacturing here for where the plant district is. And the reason I, uh, there's construction here is they're bringing up my unit to, um, residential code because I <laughs> gather people in our building to get as law law protection. So our building is a, is a small example of what you're talking about. The artists in this building made it really cool. And there was a building next to us that actually had ceramicists, like all kinds of people in there. And it got completely imploded. And a lot's being developed now. It's Boston developers came in and they're building a 17-story storage facility. And I think they're just holding the land um, and then doing something. We'll, we'll see. But it's – so any, anyways. Um, so, Okay. The other thing is this hair, hair washing project I did, um, there was, a, I got palm trees from the plant district on loan and they were stolen the night of the opening. And um, they were stolen and sold to um, a restaurant in Little Italy, but the police station I had to deal with was the Chinatown police station. And it was really cool. I got to get, get in a NYPD van. <laughs> And we retrieve the trees. Anyways, okay. I have to say also the the um, the meal that I'm doing, um, I'm calling it um, outdoor dining because the other thing I noticed during the pandemic is everybody's outside enjoying uh, food as if you're in Europe. But who's going to ruin your outdoor dining experience? We've taken over the streets, 
of people who live on the streets. So where else are they supposed to go? Um, so when I did this hair washing project for a month, it was this dilapidated park. And I had no clue because I didn't live there. But they got sick of me being here. They, meaning people who lived there before I was there. So I had a storage shed um, with all this equipment. And towards the end, people were urinating on it. They were marking their territory. They were like, get out, get out, get out. So it's really interesting, all these different um, things that um, your presentation that is like making me think about. Save me up all week. I'm in a park, I feel like I'm in a jungle. 
music's very relaxing. It was a good experience. I told my bosses to come down here. They'll probably come down. It's such a generous thing for her to do. It's a brilliant idea that she can do this. She can bring this to the public. It's uncompromising, it's right there, it's up your face, and it's, it's effective. I think once people see somebody getting their hair washed in, in public like that, they think they want to do it too. While I was drying my hair, a lot of people came and said, can I have a hair wash too? Is it for free? Can I also do it? I say, yeah, sure, go ahead, do it, it's for free. You can see the crowd. I, mean, I got my hair washed for, for free. And I'm, I'm happy. Okay, I'm going after No, no, no. So I was going after Stanley. Oh. I was going for Stanley and Jeff. As you can see, people are fighting over who will go next. Young children in the streets of New York. Must be good. I think it's really great the way the kids are getting involved because they're, they don't have a lot of preconceived notions. So to them, this is a great thing. Like they can come to a public place, they can feel some trust, they feel comfortable, and you know, they're letting Nancy touch them. And I just think it's a great involvement. You feel cleaner? Yeah. They smell good. They smell good? Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to show the credits because I got businesses in the community involved to uh, donate products and services, and so it looked commercial, but it really wasn't. It was really interesting uh, in Betsy's presentation that gentrification is new colonialism. And it's, it's true that people are not so aware usually that we almost got rid of any homelessness in the 70s, that uh, we had more uh, the, the apartments which are for uh, rent controlled and other apartments that was affordable and then the average rent in 19 I think 83 was four hundred dollars and uh, you know uh, how did we get to this point where like average rent is now what like one thousand eight hundred dollars per month or so and uh, yeah so it's really uh, interesting phenomenon that uh, the New York Historical Society is doing this exhibition. And uh, it's, I hope the show can really not only do something to look at, but uh, it can involve, you know, people. And uh, I think the Mocha case is just so uh, disappointing in a way that uh, the Asian Americans had uh, this very peculiar way of using the space like uh, Nancy I mean the first time I saw her walk was the manicure station which she manicures people's hands because uh, her mother owned uh, uh, the manicure salon is that correct Nancy I think you well, uh, my mom had a hair salon. Oh, yeah. That's where my skills come from. But um, my 
cousin's wife had a nail salon in the city. Oh, okay. We got training there. Yeah. All for the sake of art. So you you didn't really exhibit in the proper spaces. I mean, later when you were like exhibiting at the white columns and so on, but and that uh, this is for Nancy, and I think that's very interesting that you where you came uh, from, and uh, even with this new um, proposal of outdoor dining, you are very much opposing to record anything because uh, it's not really something to show, but it's more about your own hospitality for people. Um, I don't even want to impose my hospitality on people. Like if they don't want to participate, they don't have to. But, you know, the thing I was thinking about is that for um, all practical purposes, when we think about feeding people who don't have food, it's about servicing quantity for X number of dollars. And there's something about if you can sit down and you have, I don't know, we're going to maybe have real plates and real silverware and you can talk to your friends and just, just a moment of just, it's humanity, you know, a little bit of relaxing time. For me, that is invaluable. Um, just because I don't know what it's like to be homeless, but I know when I'm a little bit crazed, what can help are really, really simple, calm things. And I think it's, it's something you can hold with you and kind of reference. Um, when I proposed the public shower project, it was along the same idea, is somewhere where you can actually just take your time and get clean, which is, I think we all know the benefit of that. Like it's the, it's the mental health as well as the physical. And how are your fingers? It seems like you're shampooing the whole day. <laughs> with all these people lining up? I'm not understanding the question. How how are your hands? Was it okay? Like, did you get it? Oh, right. It's true. Um, I think I washed about 200 heads of hair in a month. Um, but maybe it was a conditioner. It was fine. If I can chime in, I, I, what struck me about that project and some of the other projects um, that you are part of that Maduro was just describing is that just the um, opportunity to have just like real conversations with people while that is happening. And I love that, that you're intentional about not documenting and you're intentional about really respecting um, that, like their, their humanity and whoever it is first and foremost. And that's something that I always have to like, because I'm a documentarian, my first thought is always, document and there's been pushback at times where I have to really respect that and understand that let this moment exist right um a lot of I think a lot of socially engaged artists that do this kind of intervention in the public you know there's the part where the people who experience it with you that 10 or 20 people that's enough you don't need to document it and then show a thousand people on social media or something and I thought that was really um that was really beautiful um I mean, it made me think of the story circles that we opened with with a lot of the tenants which we didn't film and the story circles that comes from the model comes from Junebug Productions, which is a Southern theater company uh, led by uh, Black uh, Southern theater folks, um, like using that model. And basically, there were three questions that we put out to the tenants. 
And one of the, almost every single tenant answered the question of a time that they felt uh, a lack of belonging. It was like a time when you felt belonging and at home and a time where you felt the complete opposite. And so um, this was like one of our first meeting between artists and like tenants. A lot of us who are activists and are, you know, we all wear multiple hats. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room because everyone talked about how this one man talked about how he was displaced, dislocated from China, you know, come here to work and he's undocumented and he has moved like at least a half a dozen times in a very couple of years because he gets evicted right from his place. And he hadn't gone back home for, I think, almost 10 years. And his son is like 18 now or something. Um, and he was getting very emotional. And then a tenant alongside him and they've been organizing together for like 10 years or more. And she was like, I never even knew your story. Like, we do this work together, but we don't even know each other as human beings, like our one another stories. So it kind of brings it down to, like, the nuts and bolts of why we're in this world, like, you know, the humanity of it. Um, and that was just um, just something so basic of everyone having the three to five minutes to tell their story, you know, you know, undivided attention. Nobody asks questions. Nobody interrupts. They just tell their story. And, yeah, that's some, something so simple was powerful so it, it reminded me of that um like the, the interventions that you kind of create for that to happen so. it's very interesting because uh, one of my students said we should really listen to them that i think we lack uh the exercise of listening probably and by doing that uh, i think we may learn a lot more about others and that can open up humanity. Um, there are two questions that came in. One is what can people do to not feel homeless in New York City? And it's from the same person, Brandon Long. Uh, another one is how do people feel when they are homeless or um, I think it's unhomed? It's a difficult question. The uh, homeless poet who was reading uh, the poetry in my our video piece, he is actually he when he came from New Jersey to New York, she, he was working on three jobs and he was capable of paying rent, but he thought it was very wrong to do this because. Uh, you know, you're working three jobs and you're barely like surviving because the rents are so expensive. So he dropped out of the society in order to be a homeless activist. And he recently got, uh, I think, a lower income like housing, which was very nice. And, you know, he's a vegetarian and he maintains this kind of like life uh, on the street, which was very uh, amazing. So there are very many different types of homeless people, so we cannot to generalize them. I have a question for you, uh, Professor Yamamura. Uh, what was the actual origins of the Unhomeless NYC project? How did it come about? Who, who, who brainstormed it? And uh, how did you go about getting the funding to make it, uh, you know, Thank you for a nice uh, question. It was actually me who started it because when I was one day at the Grand Central 
and everything was becoming really hostile for the homeless population. And then when you think about your own life, I almost lost home because there was a forced eviction, which, you know, you don't even like realize it because we take it for granted in some ways that, uh, you know, if you don't own a house, um, something happens to you, doesn't, you know, you, you, you have no control over. Um, but but you can fight, you know, and uh, I think it's very important to sort of like, you know, bring this kind of uh, exhibition so that people can uh, be more active and uh, can have some more say. And then like, uh, you know, like Betty's uh, artwork, which is really, I think, impressive. And then Nancy also uh, very different way of approach, more from unimposed hospitality, so-called, uh, from that aspect. So I was just hoping that maybe bringing some artists together and creating an art art exhibition can really change, you know, people's way of conceiving the reality and also uh, homeless people. Oh, we do have a question for Noella. She asks, uh, do you guys donate by raising money with your art to help homeless people with housing? I don't know if uh, any of the art that uh, installations that you've done in the past uh, has actually raised dollars. So we made one artwork, uh, the first work which you had seen, you had seen in the uh, video. Um, sort of like a collaboration with homeless people and then we were paying for their participation like $25 an, uh, an hour uh, just hoping that it can help a little bit you know to to uh, provide some comfort and we've been really like learning so much from uh, the home homeless people ex-homeless people's comments especially Rob Robinson, who appeared in the video, uh, he's just so amazing that what he can bring uh, to us from his own uh, experience of being a ho ending up on the street. Um, so I can also address that. Um, I didn't necessarily just from what you sh what I showed uh, might not be uh, apparent visible in the installation work, but I've done collaborated with organizations and created videos with them. Actually, I know Rob Robinson and um, Marcus for many years. I trained them in video production way back when I worked at Manhattan Neighborhood Network, like probably 2003 or two with Picture the Homeless, which is the group they're with. And so I've done a lot of work with them. And um, I, I think a lot of my work is also working with groups that are uh, not, like not just... Um, homeless-led organizations, but fighting for legislative change and fighting for uh, policies to change their conditions. So like Picture the Homeless is one of the only organizations in um, in the country that is really led by and for homeless people and advocating for themselves. So I've done a lot of work with them. Um, I also, uh, you know, um, the tenant organization, we will do work to help fundraise for them as well, for sure. Um, something I didn't share here is I, I was asked by Nanum House, which is a group in Flushing, it's a housing shelter mainly for Korean, not only Korean, but Korean, mainly Korean homeless folks, especially during the pandemic. A lot of them um, were houseless. 
um, and it's in Flushing and they house about 20 to 30 people at a time. And they're at risk of shutting down because people, it's in more of a suburban part of Flushing where, you know, different people have been like calling the cops on them or like trying to complain, you know, um, make complaints to housing, the housing department about them, but they're legit. They can operate as a shelter. So anyway, um, all that to say that I uh, worked on a, um, a, a series of videos for their fundraising effort a couple months ago, and they were able to hit their target because they want to build, they want to buy their building, to buy their house. Um, and so that's just a few examples. But um, like for me, it's also about like working with groups that are fighting to change, uh, help, you know, change policies and, and change the system as well and challenge the system. So... Thank you. Uh, Nancy, this question is for you. Your hair washing intervention project, was it an annual thing or did you just do it the one time in 2002 for an entire month? I only did it one summer and it was really difficult because it was the summer after 9-11 and nobody would uh, insure it. And you need to have the parks department requires like $2 million liability insurance. And usually when artists do projects like this, I worked under the auspices of Storefront for Art and Architecture. I got the water from there. And their policy usually lets you ride in their policy. And that's how artists have been working normally. And I wasn't able to do that. And I, I think I we paid several thousand dollars to somebody who was like, okay, we'll do it. I don't know. So it was a one-time thing. Um, yeah. And, uh you and everybody else uh, thoughts on how your approaches to utilizing art and visual design in order to engage uh, people in these social activism activations my idea of um activism is uh, i i feel like it can have many many faces um and i get overwhelmed sometimes when i think about how heavy that word is and i think everybody can do a lot in their own way um it's somehow tied into the question about, you know, have we donated money towards the homeless? And Betty's response of, of her doing the um, training people and doing video editing, that it's, it's so interesting, this idea about money and what money can do. Is that where our value system is? Um, you know, um, the, the funding that um, Midori got for my project, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking for an artist to be, I'm not, my chef friends, I'm, all of them, they're donating food and their time, we're not taking any of it. If it works out well, and it stays warm, we can do it another time until all the funds are depleted. Um, it's, this is not a time when you're like taking money, but it's, it's, it's about um, what you can do in your daily life and what you're thinking and how you converse with people and just snippets of things, how that can influence other people to change. That's, I feel like um, for me, that is one way to be activist all the time. You don't have to call it art. You don't have to call it activism, just, just being and thinking, I guess. Yeah, I think you're totally right, Nancy, about what you said in terms of, um, and, and I, I hear the question about raising funds, like, of course, like car cash is always something groups can use um, for sure. But uh, because I don't have money, <laughs> I have donated labor <laughs> and in the form of training or just um, you know, sometimes I barter with people, right? Like you do this for me. I do, you know, it's not just all about altruism. Sometimes I'll get something back from it. Um, I did this event actually around gentrification and, um, uh, you know, with Marcus, he actually performed one of his pieces, Marcus, um, at, at the, at, 
at at the event um and i didn't have uh, an honorarium to give him but he was like oh can you show me how to create a website or something i forget what it was this is many years ago and that was our bartering system you know so um so you know i i totally hear that it's, it's what you can contribute and i think it all is is, is value valuable one is not you know more uh, deemed more valuable because it's in the form of hard cash or something. Um, but in terms of art and design for activism, um, I guess I, I I think I understand the question. I'm not, maybe I'm not answering it correctly, but uh, for me, it's always really important, especially working with uh, community-based organizations or a community like CAV, the, the Chinatown Tenants Union, or even this upcoming project with the door for this poster project um, with this New York Historical Society or any other group. Um, you know, uh, I like to lean on their skills too. Like, I know that there's a lot of expertise in the group. It's not just me coming into a community saying, oh, I have these skills and I'm going to extract and leave like a, like an anthropologist or something. Um, so building those relationships is really important to me, whether it's for, you know, a couple of weeks or months or years. Um, and all that to say that I feel like the design and the art comes later. Um, it's actually coming together and figuring out what is the goal, what do we want to do with this, whether it's a projection or a video or installation, what is, what's our goal, who are we trying to reach, and then everything else falls in place. And just one quick example is with the tenants in Chinatown, we had this whole thing set up of like eight weeks of workshops we would do with the tenants, and we introduced it, this curriculum, very academic and they tore it apart in a good way. They were like, we don't understand what you're talking about. This doesn't make sense for us. We're working all the time. You know, we, we have devoted once a week to come here and maybe a little more. And so they, you know, because they're leaders in the community and they do this, they, they kind of turned it on its head and it made it so much better because they were like, let's do these walks in the community, point out places of importance. Um, and then we did a mapping thing and then it organically turned to these story circles. And then we created projection images out of it. And so all that to say that we couldn't predict that from the beginning. It was a set of folks that we were working with together. Um, and, you know, you could call it art. And some people may say, oh, it's a projection with words. That's not art. For us, it didn't really matter. It was about getting the messages out there and reaching those Chinatown tenants, immigrant tenants, so that they knew that there was someone out there for them that share share the same experiences and so I totally agree sometimes we take out art out of the equation actually because a lot of them are like we can't do this we're not cultural producers and our whole thing is actually to demystify that but anyone can do it um so yeah so I don't know if that answers the question about art and design but um I feel like yeah I feel like that comes later for for me at least okay um we have a raised hand from Elizabeth Guida hi yes um so my my question is, um, I've heard um, in California that there was um, a project to help um, people who are homeless to actually own their own um, property, like a very, and they were tiny homes. Yeah, um, yeah I was wondering, if there anything, and I was like, well, something like that might work in um, in New York. So do you know anything about that? Is that a possibility? There are kind of these very tiny homes, but it's great because they're um, equipped with everything you need and, and the, the people look so um, happy to own something. So yeah, why are these tiny homes cannot to come to New York? Well, I think, I think what Elizabeth <laughs> is referring to, uh, I think 
in LA it was that uh, the city had a bunch of uh, modular uh, home apartment homes made out of uh, cargo tanks, yes, correct. and uh, they made those available for homeless folk in order to uh, have homes, and there was a on a very fast basis. But then uh, in terms of New York City, I, the, the housing crisis is <laughs> something that hasn't been tackled in, in, you know, during these past eight years under this uh, current administration and something to be dealt with in the next. I, I don't know if uh, Nancy or Midori or Betty wants to answer anything, if they know anything in regards to uh, the solutions to the housing crisis over here in New York City. Well, I, I think if you introduce something cheaper, it's going to become a problem for the housing market. And that's what we have to fight for because, you know, the capitalists like Tom Angotti in the film was saying like, you know, people, and then Betty was saying that they are empty lot and that sits for a long time because it's like an asset in the bank. And the housing is a basic, rights for the people but we've been treating people like you know the dots in the um uh ex expense books you know like in the bank banknotes i was just gonna say yeah the warehousing that i know you were just talking about too nancy earlier in regards to your neighborhood and warehousing in chinatown people always say well what are you talking about gentrification there's so many retail you know signs like for rent signs on the ground floors of places and i say well it's warehousing the landlord or the real estate developer can afford to keep it empty rather than literally decreasing the rent by 80 percent for a mom and pop place like a bakery to sell buns out of you know they rather not rent it out to that mom and pop places and wait for the gallery or the big high end big box store to move in. And so that's, you're right. I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I, you know, we know this, there's so much property in New York city that can easily house people, uh, but they're just being warehoused. But I do know that there are groups who are fighting uh, for community land trust. So there's a working group in New York city made up of different housing groups and uh, who also advocate for homeless folks um, uh, trying to buy, um, trying to create community land trusts. So in places like Baltimore, I know it's been very successful and other places where real estate probably isn't quite as expensive, where you demand the city give you something and you collectively own it. And the only community land trust we have in the city to this day, and it took 50 years to get it, is on 4th Street in the East Village between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. So it's, um, it's, it's um, the Cooper Square Cooper Square Committee Association. Anyway, my brain is kind of disintegrating, but the Cooper Square basically it was a 50-year fight. They finally won. So everyone was able to buy their uh, their apartment for, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars like 10 years ago, right? Because they had been there for over 50 years and all the businesses there are below, below market rate um, and um, it's all communally owned and shared. Um, but that's the only community land trust um, we have in the city. Um, but there are homeless groups like Picture the Homeless and other folks who are canvassing places like in the Bronx and other places maybe where the real estate is not quite as high to try to get that. But in terms of the tiny homes, I don't know. I don't know about that. If that would actually work in the city because we don't we have a shortage of actual land. Um, yeah. But I yeah. know community land trust is something that is very much folks are. are it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> I mean, people have been fighting for that for, for a long time. So we actually have a community garden, so we, you should come out to the King's Forum. Oh, yeah, cool. I didn't know that. That's really cool. But it's part of the campus. Uh, we'll limit it 
to the final question right now. Uh, Catherine Ma, uh, a colleague of yours, actually, Midori, at Kingsborough Community College, uh, she asked, do you think the numerous deaths from basement apartments uh, from the recent flooding from Ida uh, will result in changes in the housing crisis in New York City? Well, from Betty's presentation, it doesn't look too good about Eric, Eric Adams. Yeah, I will just point you to a lot of the research and work of Tari Hum, who some of you probably know, who is the chair of urban studies at Queens um, College, and uh, a friend of mine and a colleague that I've worked with a lot. And she's written a lot, a lot. And there's New York Times articles and all of this anyway, um, about uh, the open secret of basement apartments in Queens and specifically flushing, um, not to code. They know that landlord, you know, landlords, some really feel like obviously to make rent on real estate taxes, they have to do what they have to do for the most part. They're not. They're unscrupulous like landlords and homeowners who are putting children and families in basements um, and huge, huge violations. Um, so it's been an open secret that the government, everyone knows about it, you know, and and sadly, I don't know if anything is going to change. I mean, it's very frustrating. So that makes it in the headlines for a couple of weeks and then it goes away, you know, and short, it's a shortage of as affordable housing. As we know, there's mold down there. Kids are growing up living in basements. It's crazy. It's very upsetting, yeah, but yeah, I don't think our new mayor is going to help much because yeah. he's all about build baby build. <laughs> so hope, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Hope art can change this kind of mentality with humanity. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, actually, I'll, I'll just make uh, one, one comment. Uh, in regards to affordable housing, most recently in the news in uh, Soho, NoHo, there's a rezoning uh, going through at, during the, in the city right now. It's a city planning being uh, mulled over by the commissioners. But within this, this particular plan, uh, there is a component in terms of affordable housing. So they're saying that they're going to build these affordable housing units in four specific areas in this rezoning. However, 43% of the proposed housing that they're proposing is actually within Chinatown and within a three block area radius. However, in this particular plan called Soho Noho rezoning, they don't even mention the word Chinatown at all. So they're slowly cleaving away a little bit of Chinatown in order to solve this affordable housing crisis uh, you know, problem. And also one of the major issues is that the affordable housing that they're proposing is not guaranteed affordable housing or housing at all. However, they're uh, sort of just proposing, well, you know, we'll make it this particular height for housing. We'll make it this particular height. If they don't choose housing for commercial building, and then we'll just let people choose in the future what will come, you know, will come about. So that's one of the issues coming, uh, like being dealt with on the community level right now. First in the community board, now it's at city planning, and next it'll go to city council uh, that will be get voted on by this particular mayor who's going out by the end of the year and by half of the city council who's going out by the end of the year. Can, can I say one last thing to that? You raised a really good point. So the gerrymandering of neighborhoods, redistricting, which now is bifurcating Chinatown away from everything else, but also the affordable housing, right? I mean, de Blasio is to blame for this. Um, you know, they consider 18, 80, 80 to hundred thousand dollars as affordable housing because they use all of Westchester, the median income of the whole entire city, including Westchester and Long Island. And that's eighty-five to one hundred thousand dollars. Meanwhile, the median income of a family of four in Chinatown is thirty-five thousand dollars. So even that metric of affordable housing is not affordable to anybody in Chinatown, to most working people. 
So that's why a lot of the affordable housing, even East New York and in other rezoning plans, it's not really affordable for the everyday working class person. But yeah, the fight continues. <laughs> and there's a question, the same, like six. Oh, the same thing, yeah. Yeah, 1,000K a year mm -hmm. was. Yeah, and then I read like uh, out of like 8,000 units, only 3,000 will be affordable, which is not even affordable price. Which it's very ironical. Yeah, it's not affordable. It's it's a joke. Yeah, unfortunately. The thing about the basement, it just reminded me of why everybody was up in arms because Parasite won for Best Picture that year. I, anybody? That's right. Parasite. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. It was the people living mm -hmm. in the basement versus a mansion. Yeah, and that's right. Showed how these people people are all wanting the same thing. Before we conclude, I want to thank uh, Professor Yamamura, Nancy, Betty again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, for more information about Unhomeless NYC exhibition, please visit the link from our lecture page of this talk or directly at homelessnyc.commons.com.s gc.cuny.edu. And uh, also please visit the uh, artists. Nancy, do you have an artist webpage available? I just have one for my project um, that it's ongoing called somewhereinamerica.org. Yeah. Um, it's somewhat on hiatus because of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and you can actually find that link uh, on our lecture page under Nancy's biography. And then Betty uh, has you have your website that you showed during your slides. And then she yeah. is also uh, exhibiting starting tomorrow for the next couple of weeks at the uh, Ch Chinatown Seoul, I believe is the title. Yep. It's a 78 Bowery. Yeah. 78 Bowery with other artists, in, uh, including uh, Tomi Arai, who has, uh, who actually drew this for us, for our Asian American oh, matters. Right. She did mention that. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And once again, happy Filipino American History Month. Enjoy your weekend and remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. So that's it. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, uh, Betty, Nancy, and Professor, for your great presentation tonight. And have a great weekend, folks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. Bye-bye. Yeah.